a joy to be here with you. To worship with you and to attend to God's word with you. I did ask for uh, the reading that was assigned to me to be extended a little bit to set a balance for uh, these very stark words that we receive now in the book of Hebrews. As you've been journeying through, you um, have heard, this, is, this I think is the third warning that has sounded through the book of Hebrews. And uh, this one uh, stirs the soul quite deeply, perhaps even to the point of unsettling us. Why are these words part of the scripture addressed to Christians? And that's the question we'll be holding this morning and weighing in our own hearts. I wonder if we can just pause again to pray and uh, ask the Holy Spirit to be teaching each one of us personally the things that we need to hear from this word. We pray, Father, for grace not to be burdened unduly, and to receive from your heart the things that you as a father have to convey to your children. Would you teach us, Lord God, according to your purpose and will. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Last week, I mentioned that for some, this point here, verse 19 of chapter 10, is kind of a bridge <clears throat> or a hinge from the first half of the book, which is unpacking all the theology of the Old Covenant and presenting it to us in New Covenant terms. And it crosses the bridge to application, to setting into what is the way we are to appropriate these things. What is the impact of this ultimately on our lives? And the first point that we spent most of our time with last week was that we have access to the living God and that being the whole point of the Christian life to draw near to God <clears throat> that if we are not availing ourselves of the privilege of having access to God by faith then we have missed the whole reason for Jesus life and death and the coming of the Holy Spirit perhaps you remember that message that's more or less what I was saying in some but there are two other and the exhortation there was to let us then draw near this beautiful little idea of drawing near to God, drawing near. There's an intimacy, there's a tenderness, there's a gentle invitation, draw near. It comes out of the old covenant witness also of the priest who draws near with the sacrifices. Well, there are two more exhortations that follow that we didn't spend any time with last time, and I just want to set them in place because what seems to happen here in the next little portion of this is that these words of warning are set in contrast to these words of invitation. So the invitation first is to draw near and then to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's a key statement there. To hold fast without wavering, without distraction, without losing heart, without growing weary and drifting as another word that is used earlier in the book of Hebrews. And then... The third exhortation is let us consider how to spur one another on. And that was being spoken of here a little earlier today already. How do we spur one another on? And just by way of information, that, that word, that idea of spurring one another on is, 
is actually how to provoke one another. It's not a passive thing. How can we just encourage one another with a pat on our back? But how can, we prov- how can we interact with one another in such a way that we provoke a response, an encouragement? You know, a spur nicely conveys that in English. The, the spur that's on a cowboy's boot, you know, that it, it, it's a prod. It intended to inflict something to provoke a response, maybe from a slightly lazy horse. And so we need to find ways that we can encourage one another, not in judgment of one another, but we all need that encouragement and we need a spurring on sometimes. So this needs to be our preoccupation, drawing near to God, privilege of privileges, the height of all things, to come close to your Father, to hold fast this inward thing, the, conv- the hope that we have, to treasure that without wavering, and then outwardly to consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. This is how Christians live. This is a little formula, if you like, one more time for what is it that should govern my life? Well, here they are. And involved in the spurring one another on to, on to love and good deeds is the encouragement to not forsake coming together. Because we can't really do these works of spurring one another on and encouraging one another in our hope without being together in some way and shape, not forsaking assembling together as is the habit of some. And how interesting that this has been a problem in the church since the beginning. There is a preference. There is a kind of, well, I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever it might be that keeps you from gathering together at times. What is it? But that's not the way it ought to be for us. Our, our life together is lived together. And what a privilege we have to gather together once again. You know, there are believers in other parts of the world, that is to say, persecuted believers who risk their lives to gather together. They risk everything for this one gift of the kingdom of God to gather with the people of God. Well, let's encourage one another to that end. Day after day, because it says there is a day approaching. All the more as you see the day drawing near. And then in contrast to this, the writer to the Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the words that follow here seem to, are, seem to lie in contrast to these words of exhortation. That there is a way to persist in the old life, Willfully is a key word here in this passage. This is not the sins, not the kind of sin, not the presence of mind that Jesus was addressing from the cross. Remember Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This, that the, the, the writer to the Hebrews is addressing, sounds like a different kind of problem. This is willful sins. This is addressing people who know what not to do, but have determined to do it anyway. And what the writer to the Hebrews is warning us is that with this day approaching, there isn't any other expectation that such a one can have but an expectation of judgment. And that's a terrible place to be, isn't it, friends? We don't want to be there. We don't want to be numbered among these who are being warned in this way. So I find this this corresponding exhortation to the way that is right because there is a day coming near. There is the specter of the day of the Lord that is coming as surely as the sunrise follows the night. 
The day of the Lord draws near and we are exhorted to press on all the more as we see this day approaching. Or, in contrast, we can walk in the gloom and the, 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 the um, murk of sin and persist in that way, anticipating that same day that's coming, but with a completely different heart, with a heart that is anxious and fearful for what will the judgment be. You see the two contrasted there? Now, the thing that stands out to me about this is that both are sinners. Both those who are drawing near to God are dealing with sin and those who are shying away from drawing near to God. Those who are continuing in the way with willful sinfulness. We're not talking about the perfect and the imperfect or the super spiritual and the less spiritual. We're all in the same boat here. We're all sinners but, and the sin has to be dealt with. We either draw near to God with a repentant heart and have our consciences sprinkled with the blood of Christ and our bodies washed with pure water or we live cowering and pretending we don't have sin at all. Friends, the proverb from Proverbs 28, let me just see if I can find that. I can't find it. It's not right here in my note. But there's a proverb 28 that says it is folly to hide our sins and pretend there aren't any sins. But the one who confesses their sin receives forgiveness and mercy. Now these words are addressed here to us because we need to be shaped by this, friends, as believers. We need to be warned by these things and adjust our course accordingly. We can either live with sin and courting the sin and curring favor with ways that are in rebellion to God that actually stir up enmity with God, or we can live in the light and enjoy the privileges of the light and the blessings of the light and the favor of God shining upon us and the expectation with joy and hope of the day of the Lord. These are the things that are set before us today. You know, who wants to preach on sin? But that's the task that has been set before me today. And even my paper on that point is buried. But fear not, I have found it. <clears throat> there is something vexing about this passage. Something dreadful. And it has to do with sinning willfully. I want us just to pause for a moment there. And you, for you to think about your life. And for me to think about my life. What might that be bringing to the surface for you? To sin willfully. Is there any moment where you can say, yes, Holy Spirit, you're convicting me now of having done such a thing? And what will you do about it? The remedy for sin and for sinners is here today. It's in my mouth that I'm about to speak and it's in your heart. Repent and call on the name of the Lord and he will set you free just as we were singing earlier. Based on the sacrifice that he made on the cross. There is the remedy. And it is even the remedy for you and I if we've been the perpetrators of this very ill, sinning willfully. We can turn to him today and receive forgiveness. But we don't want to stay there, friends. We don't want to be in that place after hearing this warning today. We want to veer as far away from the ways of sin as we can. 
that we might be strengthened in the ways of righteousness, remembering that Christ died in order to put an end to sin. That was the reason for his death, not just on a huge cosmic scale, but on the scale of your life. Jesus died to put an end to sin in your life. He called you to follow him, that you and I would stop sinning. That we no longer have to live under the burden of sinning. But not only that, the the staleness and the frailness and the, the grief we have, but he's delivered us from the consequences of sinning. Here and now, if you don't sin, you don't live under those consequences. Wouldn't you want to be living such a life? Because friends, the fact remains that even as a believer, when we walk in sin, there are consequences for our sin. This is the story of David, and it's writ large, isn't it, in David's life. Followed his whole life to his grave. The consequence of sin, even though he repented of it. But friends, you and I don't have to live such a life. You and I can live in a way where we don't sin. Do you believe that? Do you want to believe it? It's the witness of the scripture. It is our inheritance in Christ. Because remember, you have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Let me tell you a little bit more about how we've been saved from doing sin. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle writes, I write to you that you may not sin. It's incredible, isn't it? We, we, I don't want to have that verse buried under a carpet someplace. I want that verse written above my life. And when I receive this passage and read it, and these verses also in Romans and the, the parables of the Lord Jesus, these words are all given to us to summon us to a way that does not fall foul to sin. John goes on to say in that first letter, chapter 3, that all who have this hope fixed on Jesus and on his coming again purify themselves now that's intriguing because we know that we're not able to do works that purify us yet that is the word that the apostle writes we know that we are sanctified by the power of the holy spirit in us and we yield our lives to that end but we are summoned brothers and sisters to participate in that work so strongly that john says we who have this hope fixed in us on the lord jesus purify ourselves In other words, we set our minds on a path so that the works of God can be accomplished, fulfilled, perfected in us, even in this life, friends. Let me read the verse. All who have this hope, this is 1 John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. All who have this hope fixed on him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. What John is going to go on to say is that when a believer is abiding in Christ, they do not sin. Now friends, this is too wonderful to even speak of. I mean, think of it. There is this possibility for you and me today that we need not walk in sin. And the way to that, friends, is to abide in Christ. That's what we want to cultivate in the end, isn't it? Because that He is the path. He is the way. He is the truth. He Himself is the life. And He isn't the life out there. He's the life that has come to you and dwelling in you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can walk in the life that He is, in the truth that He is. 
Isn't that incredible, friends? This is our inheritance. Let us approach the throne of grace to receive help. Let us find the way of holding on to this hope without wavering. Let us provoke one another to love and doing works that are right and true. Friends, this is the witness of the whole of the scriptures. Let me just remind you of another passage. Paul writes these things in Romans chapter 6 where he says that we are in, where he invites us to take charge of our bodies because our bodies are not to be used for sin. Romans chapter 6 if you want to read about it. Jesus, we are repeatedly exhorted. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 2. If I can find it. 1 Peter chapter 2. Which way is Peter? Am I going the wrong way? No, there it is. Right after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what the apostle says there. Putting aside all malice and all deceit. Think about this in terms of the willful sin. Here are some examples of what we should be avoiding, setting ourselves apart from. Putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. That's one way of drawing near to God that we mentioned yet last, last week. So that you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I wanted to read this passage today also because it kind of illuminates this transition that I think Hebrews is identifying also. We draw near to God because we are priests of the new covenant. And that's where this passage where Peter tends, leans towards and heads next. We are living stones, part of the temple of God, speaking again of the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, to participate in something, worship before the living God. But to be, to come to this place, we have to determine to set aside all these other ways that will come between us and God, that will hinder us in our approach to God. So just one more example where we're exhorted to stop the ways that would hinder our approach to God. So, friends, why are these passages, and this passage specifically in Hebrews, why are they here? We, our brother Miles didn't read to the end of what was assigned to me today. I just want to read these last two verses. For we know if we continue in willful sin, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That's the key point here in this verse. His people will be judged. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God is where the portion ends that was assigned to me. It is a terrifying... Why are we given these words, friends? Why is this even in the letter? Well, this is all part of proclaiming the gospel. This is all part of bearing witness to the good news of God in Christ Jesus. We do not have to face this terror and friends, what we need to be reminded of is that it is a terror to fall into the hands of the living God. Unpopular to speak of today, but nonetheless it is true. It is terror because God is a righteous judge. 
who distinguishes between right and wrong. And when we are in our right minds, friends, we want what is full of iniquity to be judged and cleansed and taken even from our very lives. That we might walk in what is true and right and just. That's where we want to live. For the believer, for the believer who loves God, this is a comfort that God is unchanging, that God is unwaffling, that God is, is not taken in by some new version of things. God is the same, and it, is, and it remains terrifying to fall into his hands. But why are we reminded of these things? Well, friends, because we have this human nature that is weak. We have minds that are forgetful. And because we need to be shaped by words of warning, just as we need to be informed by road signs that tell us, of a danger that lies ahead, of a hazard that is certainly before us. This Christian life is to be lived, friends, with care. It is to be lived not in a presumptuous way, presuming on the mercies of God, but with reverential fear before Him, with a holy fear. We to live with perseverance. The way will be hard. There will be distractions. There will be things that will allure us. Things that we may prefer the comfort of staying home when in fact we're called out to be in service, whatever that may be. To go forth into the world and proclaim the gospel. To do the works of God, not as works to earn our salvation, but works that are the fruit of righteousness. We're called to those works that God has prepared for us in advance. It requires effort. It requires determination. It requires taking an attentive survey of our lives and determining these are the things that are separating me from God. I want to be done with them. I want to will to be done with sin rather than to will even passively to continue in them. Such is the way of the Christian life, friends. It is the way of gratitude, turning our hearts to receive the benefits of Christ with a heart of gratitude that will order our way in righteousness rather than a way of Ah, whatever, I know grace, God's grace will be with me today. May it never be such an attitude in us or the fruit of such an attitude. Reverence is needed. Remember the Lord's Prayer, the very second phrase or the third one, depending how you count it, our Father in heaven, maybe those are the first two phrases. The very next thing that Jesus gives his disciples to pray is, let your name be hallowed. This is the orientation of the Christian friends. This is the prayer that needs to shape you as a disciple of Jesus. It's how he taught his disciples to pray, to commune with God. That this orientation fills our hearts. Father, let your name be hallowed. That is to say reverenced, worshipped, held in awe. And that prayer begins in you and me. It's not let your name be hallowed in all the earth. Yes, there is that also, but it begins in the prayer. It begins in the one who calls upon the name of God as Father. Let me, we cannot be doing this, friends, and sinning willfully. It's really one or the other. What is the path that you have? Salvation is not a casual thing, but requires this commitment, this resolve, this fortitude to walk in the way of wisdom. And friends, all of these things are provided by the Savior. All we do is appropriate them. All we do is determine to abide in him who is all in all. 
How are we doing for time? Let me just see how much I have left to say. There's more I can say. I'm happy there's more time for your sake. You know, I don't really like talking all that much. But I'm glad there's more time to share a few more things with you. There's two images I want to share with you about the diligence that is required in following Jesus. We all know, and we've read this in Hebrews chapter 4, you've been schooled in this, that there is this life of rest to which you've been called to inherit the fullness of what God has for us in Christ Jesus, who is our rest. And there is this way that we walk in rest. That is without striving. But friends, that is not without intention. We don't walk in a lax, casual kind of way this life. We walk with determination. Two images that are given. The one is from the Lord Jesus himself. Remember he says, come to me all you are weary and laden. I'll give you rest. And then he says, and he uses an image of work to convey what follows. We are yoked with Christ is the image that he gives. And you don't get yoked to go and graze in the pasture. A beast of burden that is yoked is set upon to work. To do the works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. And remember, I'm not talking again. I want to be very clear. And of course, you all know this because you are well taught here. We're not talking about earning our salvation or earning favor with God. We're talking about doing the things God has prepared for us to do. To which and for which we will be held accountable. And rewarded. I will teach you rest, Jesus. And Jesus leads us and we work with him. Jesus says the Father is always working. He says his children are going to do greater works than he did. Well, friends, this is our time to do these things. This is where I want to set my heart. On working with Jesus. Laboring with him. In the fields with him. Doing whatever it is he's calling me to do. And I hope... And would exhort you in that same vein today. Are you doing the works God has prepared for you to do? Let's give our heart and our attention at the second metaphor in the New Testament that calls attention to the, the effort that's required is the Apostle Paul when he says he sets about his life like an athlete. Remember that? He buffets his body. He doesn't do what would be comfortable to do. Or what would be easy to do. But he sets a course in another path in order to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of him. This is the energy, friends, of the Christian life. Now, it's not a striving, but it is a determination. Our will is set upon pleasing God and laying hold of that for which he has laid hold of us. Now, this passage ends, and this is where I want to draw to a close with today. By way of encouragement. I'm not concluding yet. I just want you to know there's a little bit, another whole paragraph I want to say. But this is the last thing I want to share with you. I found it curious that this word, the very last line, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, on the one hand, we are invited. Remember the balance that I wanted to sketch for you today? We are invited on the one end to draw near to God and there's this idea of comfort, the throne of refuge that I even just mentioned last Sunday, you perhaps remember from Jeremiah. We are summoned to draw near and the idea is we want to come to the Father who loves us. We want to come to the kindness of the Lord Jesus that Peter identifies. We want to, we want to draw near to the consolation of the Holy Spirit. But there is this thing also, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I wondered, what is this living God? Where does this whole idea come from? So I trace this and I want to share with you a few thoughts about 
where the living God shows up. The first time the living God is mentioned is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the whole experience going on there is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that was interesting to me because we're told not to continue in sin willfully. And the counsel of God given to us about, in the old covenant anyway, of living the righteous life are these very things. Which, friends, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we will be accomplishing these things without even trying these ways of God, these purposes of God. But the people of God, let me just read to you briefly from chapter 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom and the great voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. These are the words of Moses. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God, and the word for the name of God is used here, Yahweh our God, has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. And we have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now, now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. And if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God? Speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. Now, that's the first time that I could find the idea of the living God put forth as a name for God, as an idea for relating to God. And of course, the experience here was a fearful one, one that stirred anxiety in the hearts of the people, such fear that they didn't want to relate directly to God, but rather would have a mediator. The failure, the failure of faith. Friends, you and I draw near to God, don't we? We come close to the same God. But because we come with humble hearts, repentant hearts, hearts seeking His mercy, He approaches us with the mercy that we seek. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we repent of them. But when we hide them, pretend we're not sinning, determined to sin willfully, the reception we receive is different. We come into the to the midst of the living God in this, uh, as described here in Moses. Now, this living God continues through the old covenant with his people. It's the, the name for the living God appears again at the beginning of Joshua as they cross the Jordan. The living God, the presence of the living God is invoked again. When David challenges Goliath, he holds Goliath in contempt because Goliath has scorned, he says, the armies of the living God. When there's opposition to God, that's where this idea of the living God comes forth in the Old Testament. It comes forth again in the time of Hezekiah when, when the king of Assyria is coming against Judah and the, the, um, the messenger Rabshakeh comes and again he is held in contempt for, for belittling the living God. Darius calls out to Daniel after the night that he spent in the, in the lion's den and he said, has the living God preserved you? See, this idea of the living God is the action of God. It's the life of God. It's in the plural form, the life's God's made into a name, the living God. It's where God is active, where God is working either to preserve or to consume. Even Darius knew that. Has the living God let you be consumed, Daniel? 
Or has he spared your life? Well, Daniel had been spared. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the greatest declaration that could be named concerning the identity of the Lord, our Savior. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now as a pastor, friends, as these words settle in your hearts and minds, I don't know what is stirred up within you, but I hope your course is determined now to follow faithfully the possibility of walking in purity of heart, walking in righteousness and truth, that path that has been made possible for you by the power of the name of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside us. But together with that, whatever is said, I want to share with you in a pastoral way two other places where the name of the living God is invoked. Both in the Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 84. And friends, as it turns out, both of these are psalms of longing. Psalms of yearning for God. Psalm 42 says, My, As the deer pants for flowing streams. So many metaphors, beautiful pictures in Scripture. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul, my life, my being for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. Friends, even for us, I should say, for us who are walking in grace, even the living God is a comfort. As God was a comfort to Daniel. It's a beautiful thing, friends. The benefits of the Christian life are out of this world to state something that's pretty bland but true when you receive it. You and I can live in communion with not only God the Father, but with the living God, the God who acts, indeed the God who comes to judge. Because the one who is in Christ, for them there is no condemnation. Here's the second psalm that speaks to us. Out of our longing, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And it sews together beautifully these two strains of the book, this portion of the book of Hebrews, to draw near to the throne of God and to turn from willful sin. How lovely is your dwelling place is the set of the believing, loving heart. O Lord of hosts is another very strong name for God. O Lord of angel armies, the God who comes to, to bring about justice where it has failed and righteousness where unrighteousness has prevailed. O Lord of hosts, how lovely is the place where you live. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Friends, let's pray. Let's turn our hearts to him. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have today to come before you with faith, hope, and in the love with which you have loved us. Lord, we come reciprocating to all that you have done for us. 
We come because you have called us out of darkness. You have set us apart as a holy people. You have appointed us as priests to serve in your temple. And here we are, O oh God, gathered together to sing your praise, to hear your word again, to be stirred up with faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We come today to be conformed to your way, Lord, to be lined up with your purpose. And God, we thank you for the grace that you're giving us, even today as we are gathered, to determine the path that you have appointed for us, to walk in the, walk, uh, to walk in the works of righteousness that you've prepared, to walk in the paths that are true, to turn from ways of iniquity that would separate us from you. For Lord, our heart truly longs for you, even though it seems that when sin tempts us, that we're longing for those things. But truly, that's not what our souls long for, O oh God. Our souls yearn for you, even as a deer pants for water. And God, we want to be where you are. We want to be where you dwell in your presence. There where we belong as your children. There drinking from the river of your delights. For truly, you are the living God who give living water to the thirsty. You, Jesus, the living bread to nourish us. God, you are all that we need. Gather us to yourself, good shepherd. Allow us to walk, we plead with you, in ways that are pure and ways that are right. This is our prayer today. Lord Jesus, in your name we ask it. Amen.